something horrifying is happening in Western culture, and it sounds like this. I think that when mad as a gender category, as something that we understand or have built for people to identify with or not identify with, is just the roles and expectations associated with the male sex. That's not a universal thing. Well, no, but that's just a set of associations. You can choose whether or not you want to be a part of that group. Yeah, so what makes you a man? Identifying as part of that group. Stay tuned as I unpack where I think this comes from and how we can reclaim the truth. Yes, Bobby has once again handed over the reins of the show to me. My name is Tim, and I'm the executive producer here at Christianity Still Makes Sense. Today, I get to share some of my thoughts on what I think is a very important topic. And speaking of sharing thoughts, I would love for you to share your thoughts. Please leave me a comment underneath this video on our YouTube channel. I always love to hear from you. Now, if you missed last week's show, it might be helpful to listen to that before tackling this show, as I hope to expand on some of the ideas from last week. Briefly, Bobby discussed a seismic cultural shift that has taken place with the rise of modernism in Descartes and postmodernism with Nietzsche and Derrida. Now, with Nietzsche, the death of God is proclaimed, and with Derrida, the eventual death of the author is proclaimed. How dare you! Now, Derrida's influence cannot be underestimated. He influenced people such as Judas Butler, the famous feminist, and Richard Rorty, the philosopher who built on Derrida's deconstruction while holding a pragmatic view of reading text, but not to get at any meaning. See, deconstruction is a tearing down of all meaning and objective truth. So what we are experiencing is deconstruction of categories, and we are moving towards a purely socially constructed view of reality, meaning, and truth. First, what are the consequences for Christianity if this takes hold? Well, who is in power will be much more consequential. Why? Because if reality is socially constructed, then whoever is in control of society will be in control of reality. But as Christians, we ought to know that Jesus is on the throne no matter who sits in the Oval Office or Downton Abbey. And reality will be what Jesus says no matter what. It will be, however, increasingly more difficult to live out our faith as we battle this new view of reality that conflicts with actual reality. Second, conversations will be more difficult. We are already seeing this. Let's revisit the clip that I played at the top of the show. This is a YouTube personality named Vosh. And in this clip, it's from a two-hour debate he had on the topic of can men be women? Now, as I listened to this discussion, I didn't know if his debate partner was a Christian or not, but what was evident was that they were both coming from different starting places but his debate partner took what I see as the classical theistic approach. As the conversation went on, it seemed they weren't getting closer to understanding one another, but they grew more and more frustrated with one another. Now, I attribute this partly to Vosch's deconstructionist and socially constructed view of language. Uh, a few of the consequences to take note of in this section, that social power becomes far more critical 
and relationships and conversation will be increasingly more difficult. What are some other consequences? Well, maybe if you have any, let me know in the comments. My central idea is this. When reality is stripped of objectivity by removing it from the properties and objects that make up reality, we are left with empty, selfish, and purely subjective reality. Here is what Vosh said. So you can choose whether or not you want to be a part of that group. Yeah, so what makes you a man? Identifying as part of that group. When you get to decide to associate with something, you become that thing. We no longer have a reality outside of us. Even worse, when someone else, like society at large, gets to tell you you are or aren't something, we are in dangerous territory. Now, before I discuss where I think this philosophy came from and contrast it with a more Christ-centered approach, I want to highlight a few more examples of where I see this popping up. Here's a famous clip from then VP and candidate Joe Biden on a show called The Breakfast Club. You are likely familiar with this clip, but here it is. Listen, you got to come see us when you come to New York, VP Biden. I a, will. It's a long way until November. We got more questions. You got more okay. questions. But I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, then you ain't black. We see this philosophy sneaking into Biden's words here. See, black isn't an external physical reality or a trait that corresponds with the amount of melanin in one's skin. It is a set of ideas and social constructs that one associates with. And in this case, it was voting for Biden. He is drawing on a strong social association of African-Americans and a longtime Democratic support. Do you see how this robs us of reality? When we use the term black about a friend or a colleague or a family member, for most of us, we are talking about a skin tone. But now it is robbed of that and replaced with a set of cultural standards that one must associate with. We see it in the formation of this chart on whiteness from the Smithsonian Museum. Now, quoting from this PDF, it says, white dominant culture or whiteness refers to the ways that white people and their traditions, attitudes, and ways of life have been normalized over time and are now considered standard practice in the United States. Now, this may be true, but notice how it is shifted from what was meant from white being a level of melanin to a set of traditions, attitudes, and a way of life. Sneaky, isn't it? Here's another example. Sean McDowell, who is a good friend of Bobby and myself, and my friend Tim Whitaker were talking about the beliefs of Christians. What makes someone a Christian? This is merely part of an over 60-minute discussion on the limits of apologetics that they had on Tim's channel. I will leave a link to that discussion in the description of this show. Now, Tim mentioned that he has dialogued with John Dominic Crossan. Now, Dom is an Irish-American New Testament scholar, historian of early Christianity, former Catholic priest who is a prominent member of the Jesus Seminar. But John denies the resurrection of Jesus as a historical event. Here's the clip. Let's check it out. I think I am personally very hesitant to start using the H word. I think I've seen it misused so much. And I think ultimately it's not my call at the end of the world, how things play out with our death. But is, is someone like John loving their, or Dom loving their neighbor and, and committed to like the way of Jesus, despite this belief difference that we have? Yes. I don't know what to do with that. I'm not saying, Oh, mm. no problem. I'm just saying, 
I don't think it's my call to make that decision of, sorry, sorry, Dom, when you die, God's going to say, Dom, you were so close. Wrong belief about the resurrection, though. So he pulls the lever and down to hell, Dom goes. I just don't know if that's how it works. So I'm always hesitant. I, I don't call Christian nationalists her- heretics. I, I really stay away from that language as much as possible because I think that puts me in a position of knowing something that I just I don't know how it works. I'm okay admitting that. See, Tim is hesitant to say that someone who denies the resurrection of Jesus is not a Christian. Now, maybe I'm wrong, and Tim can correct me, but I think it is partly due to how Tim views what a Christian is. It is those who self-identify as Christian. So you're telling me there's a chance. Even if they reject long-held historical and central teachings of Christianity, like the resurrection that they also make up parables about Jesus. They make up parables about Jesus. For Tim, it seems that living like Jesus is a better judge than the affirmation of beliefs that would inform those actions. Well, I want to thank you for sticking with me this far. If you are enjoying the show, please consider giving it a thumbs up on YouTube, subscribing to our channel, and leaving me some love in the comments. This is a channel dedicated to loving those who doubt and giving you hope in an often hopeless time. I really appreciate your support. All right, back to the conversation. In addition to Derrida and Nietzsche's philosophies, I think there's another philosopher's work at play here, and that is the work of Ludwig Wittgenstein. He was an Austrian philosopher who worked primarily in logic, the philosophy of mathematics, the philosophy of mind, and most importantly, the philosophy of language. Now, I will let this clip explain and let's tune in here to John Cyril. Though the, Wittgenstein's ideas are very complex, there's a rather simple answer to that question. He moved away from the picture metaphor of the nature of meaning to the tool or use metaphor as the correct conception of meaning. He says, think of words as tools, and the way to understand language, the way to, to get a, a correct conception of how language functions is to Look at how words are used. He says, for most cases, not all, but for nearly all cases, the meaning of a word is just its use in the language. Now this, just as the Tractatus gave him a certain metaphysical conception of the world derived from language, so by changing from the picture metaphor to the tool metaphor, he turns that metaphysics upside down. Now instead of saying that the structure of reality determines the structure of the language. Now what he says is that the structure of the language determines what we think of as reality. We can't think of the world, we can't discuss the world, we can't have a conception of the world independent of the conceptual apparatus that we use for that purpose. I won't bore you with more of the technical details of Wittgenstein, but I hope I have painted a picture of where we see these ideas today. When John Searle says that he turns the metaphysics upside down, now instead of saying that the structure of reality determines the structure of language, now what he says is that the structure of language determines what we think of as reality. This is the breeding ground for things like the association of doing male things with being male, the association of doing Christian things with being Christian, the association of black things with being black, the association of white things with being white, 
and so on. Maybe another example uh, we see in society today is the association of marriage things with being married. Again, we have stripped away what marriage is with merely the associations of actions with the actual thing. Again, my central idea is this. When reality is stripped of objectivity by removing it from the properties and objects that make up reality, we are left with an empty, selfish, and purely subjective view of reality. What something is, is its identity. To bring this home, we need to focus on identity. The philosophy of logic says that the law of identity is that a thing is A and not B. But in today's world, identity is personal in the sense that we want to use labels and associations to find a sense of belonging, meaning, and purpose. And I think the reason that we want these categories to be fluid and flexible is because it allows us to shift into categories where we feel more comfortable, we feel welcomed, we feel loved and accepted. And when the rigidness of reality bumps up against that, well, the rigidness of reality then has to go. It is more comfortable to claim that identity is fluid and self-determined as it lets us move in and out of triggering categories. Where Wittgenstein's, Biden's, Tim's, and Vosh's view of words as tools conflicts with Jesus is that it is not merely self-association or societal association that determines identity, but it is Jesus. When God sets up and communicates a category to us through the scriptures, it is not up to us to flex or augment that category. Now, with that in mind, here are some concessions that I want to make. Number one, I understand that these categories come to us through language, and that is informed by the culture in which they were first penned. But that doesn't mean we can't know, in most cases, what the categories were and apply them in other times and places. Number two, it is possible to get the application of these categories wrong. But we can avoid this with careful study of the culture and language of the time, and discuss and debate are always welcome. Number three, love shall be our guide. Now, this doesn't mean that we will always like or agree with the categories that love has led us to, but it means that letting love communicate these truths or these categories to us is super important. We all want to have the power to shape categories for our own comfort, but love says that Jesus wins. Reality is what it is, and we get to enjoy the journey. Fourth and finally, for the Christ follower, those who have been bought with the blood of Jesus and put their faith and hope in him, their primary identity is a child of the King. And we see this played out and, and emphasized in Romans 8, 13 through 15, and it says this, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We also see this in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Finally, how can we reclaim the truth? It is by understanding that identity 
is what makes us who we are and not someone or something else. See, each being has an essence, a nature, or a form. And this idea has been floating around in the West due to ancient Greek philosophers. Humans have a human nature, also called the image of God, which sets us apart from all other species. This human nature is not dependent on physical characteristics or actions. We don't lose our human nature when we get a haircut or gain weight, thankfully, or lose a limb and so on. Our human nature was defaced, not erased, at the fall, and the sacrifice of Christ made a way for us to be redeemed and become a new creation in Him. When we make physical properties like skin color or hair color or body type or our sex primary identity markers, we are reducing the image of God. Now, that doesn't mean that those aren't important. It just means that they aren't what makes us who we are as a new creation in Christ. It's the character of Christ that does. What happens when these secondary properties of ours become our primary identity? Well, first, we lose unity because they create division. We start to group together around these common characteristics instead of around the common character, Christ. Now, Bobby talked about this on his message on Sunday, October 8th, as Paul addressed this problem in the Corinthian church. If you haven't, you need to watch that message. The link is in the description, or you can visit imagechurch.live and then click on watch. Another thing that happens is that we start to see reality through distorted lenses because we are wearing race or sexuality or body image or these other lenses, and we aren't seeing things through the lens of Christ. The distortion tells us because we have this race or sexual desire or whatnot, that it affords us access to reality that those who differ or, or, or don't have those things, that they don't have access to. But it is the wisdom of the Holy Spirit that we ought to see the world because we have the mind of Christ. And as I end, I want to reiterate my central idea, and it is this. When reality is stripped of objectivity by removing it from the properties and objects that make up reality, we are left with empty, selfish, and a purely subjective reality. I hope I made a compelling case for that idea. If anything is fuzzy, please let me know in the comments. I will leave you with some audio of some recent shorts that you can find on our YouTube channel from Bobby. Imagine visiting the doctor's office only to have your doctor walk in and hand you a prescription without first diagnosing you. I'm guessing you'd pass. That's because there's no sense taking a prescription to treat an issue you don't have. Similarly, when it comes to Bible study, we are often eager to get to the prescription stage, but first we need to visit the text, make observations, and develop a proper interpretation before applying it. That said, here's an acrostic of observation to help you observe the text. Observe prayerfully. Begin by seeing the big picture. Select the style of literature. Explore commands to follow. Record warnings given. Venture to find promises proclaimed. Ask and answer questions of the text. Target key people and places. Inspect for contrasts and comparisons. Overview your discoveries in light of context and note words that are repeated and emphasized. First, revival is not a formula we produce which ensures revival. Many have spent their entire life praying for revival and never seeing one. 
Second, revival is not an event we throw, like a camp meeting featuring Brother Jesse Lowe who flips on the switch of revival. God brings revival on his terms, and there's no guarantee it'll happen, no matter how well-intended we are. Third, revival is not a feel-good time, absent of brokenness, confession, and repentance. While revival certainly brings with it a renewed sense of joy, that only transpires after our hearts have been realigned to God's word through heartfelt contrition and humble repentance. Finally, revival is not indifferent to biblical doctrine. Anything claiming to be revival that ignores doctrine such as the holiness of God, the sinfulness of humanity, or biblical repentance is not revival. It might be a movement, but it's not God's doing. The match of revival is lit when the church has fallen on morally dark times. As a result, God raises a person or a group up to call straying saints back to his word. In response, people experience brokenness, confession, prayer, and repent by tearing down the high places they've erected in their hearts. As a result, there's a return to heartfelt worship, sound theology, biblical obedience, and great commission living, which in turn produces conversion growth in the church while also having a transformative effect on the culture impacted by the revival. Furthermore, revivals never lack critics, but sadly, revivals eventually die down and in time, people forget God, re-erect their idols, and the church needs revival, sadly, once again. Oh, that wandering heart. Essentially, ethics is a study of what is right and wrong. The word ethics comes from the Greek word ethos, meaning a stall for horses, a place of stability and permanence. A good ethic does just that. It provides a sense of permanence and stability to a person. I have found many Christians don't have a problem knowing that right and wrong exists, but they often do struggle knowing which issues are truly right and wrong and why. That's especially true as it relates to issues such as abortion, capital punishment, sexuality, transgenderism, AI, euthanasia, creation care, various birth technologies, war, the economy, marriage, family, all these types of issues and more. As Christians, we need to clear away the confusion that our culture presents us and build out an ethic on God's word. Through the lens of scripture, these ethical issues crystallize once we are truly committed to being biblically measured in our appraisal of right and wrong. A quick way to set a person up to be disillusioned with God is to have them think that our relationship to him is just like it is with other people. But that's simply not the case. While God is imminent and he does connect with us, he's also transcendent and a holy other. When we go to meet with our good friends, they show up. And yet, sometimes when we go to meet with God, we feel stood up. What's going on? I'll tell you, a different kind of relationship. One consequence of divine transcendence is we cannot fully grasp what it means to be in relationship to God by simply comparing our human relationships. That's especially true when it comes to love. We cannot fully understand God's transcendent love through the lens of human relationships. There is not a one-to-one -one correspondence, nor should there be. Doubt trumps wondering, and it body slams mere curiosity. In its worst form, it goes beyond simply searching for answers to questions, inevitably denying the legitimacy of the questions themselves.
For the Christian, doubt can either serve us or sink us. It can drive us to seeking truth or it can drown us in despair, hopelessness, and confusion. If ignored or left unchecked, it can bore into our brain, releasing a virus of unbelief, infecting, and eventually destroying every healthy thought about God. Doubt metastasizes, deconstructing the once fervent-hearted saint into a shell of a human. If that's you, here are some tips to slow the spread. First, don't overly obsess on your doubts. Second, prayerfully download your doubts to God. Third, don't demand certainty by learning to embrace mystery. Fourth, realize doubt isn't a Christian problem, it's a human problem. For now, I hope that helps. Well, thank you so much for hanging out with me. My name is Tim, and if you had fun or learned anything, please consider subscribing to our channel. Don't forget to check out episode 37 for more context, and we will see you next time on Christianity Still Makes Sense. Thank you for checking out this episode of Christianity Still Makes Sense. This show is just one of the many resources available to those who are doubting their Christian faith. You can also find others at ChristianityStillMakesSense.com. This is a listener-supported show, and your gift of any amount helps shows like this continue. Click on the donate link on our website. Also, catch Bobby on Pastor's Perspective, where he answers your questions. Finally, if you're watching on YouTube, be sure to click subscribe and check out our other videos on the channel. This show was sponsored by K-Wave and Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa.